This is Poetry Off the Shelf. I'm Helena de Groot. Today, Attica again. In early September 1971, at the Attica Correctional Facility in the northeast of New York State, a group of the incarcerated men on their way to breakfast overpowered the guards and took over the prison, holding hostage a total of 39 guards and administrators. Their demands were straightforward. They wanted an end to their inhumane living conditions. They were cooped up in cells, sweltering in summer, freezing in winter. They often went to bed hungry, or were allowed only one shower and one roll of toilet paper a week. And they were beaten and humiliated by the prison guards, all of whom were white, in contrast to the men they had the power to punish and abuse. After four days of negotiations that went nowhere, then-Governor of New York, Nelson Rockefeller, gave the order to take back to prison by force. State police and prison officers barged in with tear gas and submachine guns spraying bullets, and they killed 10 hostages and 29 inmates and injured 89 others. It was the most violent shutdown of a prison uprising in U.S. history. Just eight months later, a 30-year-old poet and professor at Buffalo State College, Dr. Celeste Tisdale, was recruited to teach a poetry workshop at Attica. For a group of people who had until then not been allowed to read books or even letters their loved ones sent, this was a new experience. Today, a selection of Tisdale's students' poems, as well as his own journals from these days, have been collected in a book titled When the Smoke Cleared. But before we got to that book, I wanted to know a bit more about who Celeste Tisdale was 50 years ago. And would you say at the time when you were asked to teach this workshop, were you, you know, engaged politically? How would you describe yourself at the time? That was a, that was very much a part of the black arts movement, yes, very much so. Connected with uh-huh. many of the poets throughout the United States. Imamo Baraka, Sonia Sanchez, Nikki Giovanni, people like that. And so, yes, I was connected in that way. Uh, I was not an outwardly political person because I was a, rather reserved, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And do you remember what, because if you've never been inside a prison, I imagine that it's quite a startling experience. Do you remember at all the first thing that you noticed? Or? Yes, yes, I did. When I first walked in, I went through some eight gates to get into the prison. Wow. I got a little nervous as each gate electronically closed behind me. I was led down this long hall into the classroom and... Uh, I noticed that here we are now, a year later, the walls were charred and you could still smell the smoke. Wow. But the interesting thing was that as I was walking along the hall, a lot of the guys knew me because they were from the Buffalo area. I lived in the Buffalo area and uh, my nickname is Tiz, T-I-S. Hey, Tiz, what's happening, man? <laughs> you know, so I said, and there was Fred over there, and another guy. I can't give you the last names, of course. And I, I said, "Hey, what are you doing here?" Well, I'm here to teach, and so on. So that was my introduction. And that first class, do you remember 
because you obviously had never taught poetry to a group of you know men in prison. You were teaching literature at university level, absolutely, right? Absolutely, absolutely. So poetry was my game, so to speak. I loved poetry, and uh, I was teaching at uh, Buffalo State and University of Buffalo uh -huh. and Niagara University. Uh, and I've always loved poetry. My mother introduced me to poetry, and she was mm -hmm. a so-called illiterate. From a, we, I was born in South Carolina in my grandmother's house, my mother's mother's house. And uh, my mother, even though she could not read that well, she introduced me to poetry through a black poet named Paul Lawrence Dunbar. Dunbar was born 1872, died fairly young, 1906. But she taught me that, uh, you know, by reciting some of the poems to me. So, so your mother knew them by heart? She knew, yes. She knew some of the poems by heart. Do you remember what her favorite poem was? Uh, uh, in the Morning. That's what it was called, In the Morning. It was a poem she used to use to wake us up. I was the oldest of six kids. And Dunbar uh, wrote in the vernacular, in the southern dialect vernacular, because that's what you know people wanted from a black poet. Although he did write other kinds of poems, in the standard English. And my mother used the poem in the morning, Lias, Lias, bless the Lord. Don't you know the days abroad? If you don't get up, you scamp, they're going to be trouble in this here camp. You wash your face and comb your head. Your head looks just like a feather bed. Boy, don't you look at me. Lias, Lias, bless the Lord. <laughs> That's as much as I can, that I can remember. But she knew used that to wake us up. <laughs> That's amazing. I love that you still remember it. This must have been uh, a few decades ago now. A few decades ago. I was, what, 12, <laughs> 15, 12 years old? I don't know. No, no, only about 70 years ago. That's all. <laughs> but but, but Dun Dunbar was, is my favorite poet because of all the mm. poets and all the Shakespeare I've done and all of the um, whoever I've done, uh, Dunbar is really my favorite. You know why? Because Dunbar was able to capture not only the vernacular of his formerly enslaved parents, but Dunbar also was able to really conquer, if you will, the English language in terms of being able to use it as a poet. He was the most well-known poet in America in the 19th century. And so he would write a poem so like this. An angel robed in spotless white bent down to kiss the sleeping night. Night woke to blush. The sprite was gone. Man saw that blush and called it dawn. And that was the other side yeah. of Dunbar. Very different kind of poem. I mean, that is almost more like uh, Wordsworth or something. Very much so. Very much. And is Dunbar someone that you would also bring with you when you went and taught at Attica? Was that someone that you think, you know, people would appreciate? Sure, there were so many different kinds of things that Dunbar wrote. Yeah. And so I was able, mm -hmm. Dunbar also wrote things that were very strident about, you know, black people in the 19th century and, you know, talking about their rights and so on. So he, he was really a man for all seasons, I guess. <laughs> And it's interesting, I mean, like what you said about Dunbar, that, you know, he captured so well the vernacular. And I'm interested in, in like how that connects to your work at the prison, you know, because I think vernacular 
and the way people express themselves who haven't necessarily all gone to university and taken writing classes is probably something that is important there too to to make people listen to their own language and to their own expression how did you do that how did you make people who hadn't taken a a writing course how did you get them to pay attention to the way they were already playing with language well what i did with men in in, in attica was that i talked about poetry generally I I, okay. I went in with William Shakespeare first. I talked about different kinds of things uh, that Shakespeare wrote, and I explained to them the language of the poetry in his plays. Then I dealt with other poems and poets. What I did was introduce them to poetry of the world, African poetry. I, I talked about the ancient um, Muslim poetry. So by doing this, and reciting the poetry to them, they became very excited, and it loosened them up to show me what they had written. Mm. So by their seeing this black man, see, this, this, was, this was very different for them. By seeing this black man, a scholar, a professor, mm. coming in, but who still knew the guys from the neighborhood. <laughs> so, Right. You were really bridging that gap. It was, to me, it was easy to do. It was unnatural because uh, poetry, to me, is universal. And the whole rhythm and so on. uh, uh, So by teaching them that, then I let them feel a little bit relaxed. So that when they Uh gave me their poetry to evaluate every Wednesday night and bring it back the next day, I would let them know that, look, hey, this sounds a little bit like Shakespeare, the way you said this. Oh, this sounds like this sounds like Wordsworth. You see, yeah, yeah. So I was, you know, teachers are always teaching, as you, you know, we're, we're always teaching. Yeah. I got, I got yeah. twelve grandkids, four great grandkids, and I'm always teaching. I have six <laughs> kids of my own, so I'm always wow. teaching. Yes. Yeah, yeah, of course. I totally get that. But I also like the way that you were like, I'm going to bring in Shakespeare on, le- you know, class one. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And did you bring sonnets or what did you bring? Do you remember? Oh, sonnets, yes. Shall I compare yeah. them to a summer's day? Now yeah. I'm more lovely and more temperate. Rough winds do shake the darting buds of May, and summer's lease has all too short a date. Sometimes too hot the eye of heaven shines, and often is its gold complexion dimmed, and every pair from Paris sometime decline. By chance, or nature's changing course untrimmed, but I, eternal summer, shall not fade, nor death brag thy wonders in its shade. So long as men can hear and men can see, so long lives this, and this gives life to thee. And I told the man, hey, you learn this poem, and you tell a woman this poem, and you got the girl, man, I'm telling you. You can't miss. <laughs> this is sonnet number 18. Don't forget this. He wrote about 150 of them, but remember this one. Wow. And, and try it on Valentine's Day, you know, whatever. Yes. I guarantee you, you'll get the girl. <laughs> <laughs> Did anyone that you know take you up on it? Yeah, well, it worked for me. <laughs> I have a woman I've been with for 42 years. No, let's see. We met, yeah, for 46 years. Wow. Yeah, it worked. It worked. <laughs> That's amazing. Our first night I'm, together, yeah. I, read, I read poetry to her. 
that's that's beautiful. That's just beautiful. I'm also interested, you know, when you're talking, when you're reciting this again from memory, right? It's all from memory. When you're reciting this uh, Shakespeare sonnet, just imagining it in a prison context, mm-hmm. it, it gives it a whole new shade of meaning to me. Like the the longing and the poignancy. And the, you know, the fact that everything changes and everything disappears and, you know, it takes on a whole new meaning, I feel like, in the context of a prison. Yes. I, I, the, the thing that I, that I really found out about these men was that uh-huh. poetry, and it sounds a little corny, but poetry is universal. You yeah. see? And the poetry also has the lilting aspect of it, the rhythmic aspect, as you well know, mm-hmm. uh, the musicality mm-hmm. of it. And these men like jazz, you see. So I go back to Paul Lawrence Dunbar. And Dunbar was doing uh, what we call jazz. Me and my baby got two more ways to do the Charleston. Charleston. No, that's Langston Youth. Me and my baby got two more ways to do the Charleston. Charleston. Me and my baby got two more ways to do the Charleston. Charleston. Folks face dance. Folks folks play. Folks folks dance in a cabaret. Me and my baby got two more ways to do the Charleston. Charleston. Cha-cha-cha. And how do they react? They start moving and moving their head and tapping their feet. Yeah. And some of them get up mm-hmm. and dance and, you know, and uh, I just love doing yeah. it. I'm uh, wondering if we can get to a poem. Let me see. Um, maybe the one on page 130. It's called Applause to Archie Step and Co. And it's by a man, Christopher Sutherland. Do you remember him at all? Do you want to say something about him? Yes, Christopher Sutherland was one of my better poets. He was a mm. person that was a deep-thinking poet person, a very caring person, a man who loved poetry quite a bit. And uh, he didn't talk much, but he wrote very well. Oh, here it is. I got it. I found it. He says... Uh, Wait, and, and so wait, can you introduce it somehow? Because Archie Shep came to the prison, right? Yes, he did come to the prison. And I was there that day. Was I there that day? I think I was. I went there for something. I think you, in the book, it seemed as if you were there the next day. And that the uh, people who, you know, in your class were saying like, oh, yesterday Archie Shep came and there was this great concert. You're right. I, I didn't, yeah. You're right. Yeah, the, the memory slips a little bit at this point. Uh, of course. <laughs> Shep was there that day. You're right. And... Uh, uh, let me read the poem. Uh, <laughs> yes, please. Uh, we listened to your rhythmic hope message that quickly dissolved suffocating despair with fresh air for all. Your music won our hearts and our souls applause. Thank you. And wonderful guy. Can you tell me about this poem? What, what strikes you as you read it now? Um... I see Chris's face. A lot of guys, I don't see their faces anymore because a long time ago, 50 years. But I see Chris's face. Huh. What did he look yeah, like? He, uh, he was a kind of a light-skinned guy. Uh, he was uh, kind of stocky, was paroled, and he wrote me a letter and said, I got me a girl and a Cadillac. <laughs> Not bad. <laughs> How do you like that? Got me a girl and me a Cadillac, man. I said, oh, you're doing all right. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> you, you seem on your way. Yes, indeed. Well, you know, what I'm so interested in, like hearing you read this poem and reading the stories about these men in your book, I was just so struck by their creative 
spirit squandered, like not in the poems, obviously, but like in the remainder of their days, right? Like, this is my personal opinion, but just the thought that we're spending all this money and investing in all these buildings and having all this bureaucracy and, and hiring people to then basically make a setting in which people are almost forbidden from thriving. You know, it's like they, they make it so that it's almost impossible to be, you know, a full human being, creative, curious, uh, loving, you know, all of that is like banished, it seems like in prison. And so <clears throat> I'm wondering when you were, you know, introduced to these men and you got to know them and you got to know their creativity, how did you deal with the fact that they were in an environment that made creativity so hard? Well, well, here's what I thought. First of all, they were men just like me. No different. They just made the wrong mm -hmm. choice somewhere. Mm -hmm. I could have been in there myself as an inmate. Um, what I became was a catalyst. You know, catalysts can either mm -hmm. go, you know, things go up or go down. And mm -hmm. the catalyst, in terms of huh. making, you see, I don't think of them. I didn't think of them as inmates. And they tried to tell me why they were in prison, and I don't want to hear that. I do not want to hear why you're here. I'm here. Oh, seriously? You would stop them basically when they wanted to tell you, like, I robbed a store or whatever. That you were like, don't tell me. Absolutely, I don't want to know that. I'm here uh -huh. for one thing. I'm here to uh -huh. make you understand that you are creative or you can become creative and I'm going to teach yeah. you how to write poetry. That's it. I don't want to know anything else. But, you know, it's interesting to me. I'm going to just press on that point a little bit because you said, you know, they're, they're just men. It could have been me in there and it was them, you know. I understand that, but it was them. And you went on for, you know, that the 50, like it's been 50 years. So all of those 50 years that you've been out living your life, you know, loving your wife and having kids and, you know, doing your research and teaching, you've been living your life. You've been allowed to be creative, right? And I wonder what it has have you ever had a parallel track in your mind let's say about oh what are they up to now you know like oh are they still inside what does that mean then for them what have they missed out on is that something that you ever thought about i've thought about them uh, but not to the point that i it becomes all consuming i don't know yeah. i understand what happened to them and why it happened but i yeah. understand that i was there for that moment now, if sure. for that moment it goes beyond that, it's, yeah. it makes it even better. There were some men who were not in the workshop who saw me in the hall leaving class, and they came to me and said, uh, uh, I would like to have you uh, take a note for me or uh, arrange mm -hmm. for you know, women to, uh, to call me and so on. No, the men wrote me letters. They didn't mm -hmm. telephone me because I never gave them my phone number. But some of them mm -hmm, wrote me mm -hmm. letters. One, one person wanted, wanted me to go by his wife's house and say something to her uh, about yeah. what, he, what he was doing. I did that only once, and I thought that was not a yeah. good idea. N not a good idea, so I never did that again. Yeah, I know that makes sense. And, of course, I have a journal in this new book that goes into deep detail about my relationship with the man outside of the workshop yeah. itself. Yeah. Well, I was wondering if we can get to a little excerpt from your journal. It's on page 96. I'm going to open it with you. 
So this is an entry from January 2nd, 1974. Okay. Uh, 1974. The pages are out of order because I was looking at looking through his stuff this morning. And let's see if we can go this way. Go ahead and read it. Uh, read it uh, for me, and I can, I can comment on it because I'll remember it. Oh, great, yeah, great. Okay, okay. So this is the part that I was interested in. You write, The men have been asking me to bring pictures of my family for the past year. Tonight, I brought some, and they were quite delighted. What an affinity they have for family life. I was surprised at their reaction to my children in the photos. It was quite unlike what I am accustomed to seeing as men's reaction to children. That's true. I, uh, I was very surprised at how much they were really family-oriented, really. And uh, they loved to see, they, uh, Captain, you're right, they kept asking me about pictures of my children and so on, and they loved it. And... Do you ever feel like they were, um, because y you said, they're just men. It could have been me in there, you know? And so I'm wondering if they actually had the same thought. Like, oh, you know, this professor of ours, he's just a man. Could have been me out there, you know, living my life, having children. Well, it was just, it was reversed with me in, in terms of that. Even though I'm not yeah. in there, I'm in there, you see. One of my brothers-in-law uh, was in there. And I knew other guys who had gone to prison. And there were yeah, a couple other yeah. guys who were in there that I grew up with, in the, I grew up in the projects, you see. When we, when we moved to... Buffalo in 19, <clears throat> the winter of 1941, we moved into a housing project called the Willard Park Projects. It was built, especially in 1937, for black people on the east side of Buffalo. Uh -huh. That's all my dad could afford. We moved in there, and many of the guys that I grew with, played with, went to school with, and so on, they were men at Attica. And so they saw something in me that I didn't lord over them. You mm -hmm. see, my attitude was not, hey, see what you could have become? You could have become a professor like me. No, I'm here because I believe in the humanity of man because I care for you. I wouldn't be here if I didn't really care. Uh, the uh, little money that you gave me for travel, that was nowhere near <laughs> enough. To do what I was doing. <laughs> Come on. Yes. It yes. wasn't for the money. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Yeah, a few things of what we do in the field of poetry are for the money, right? No, right. They're not for the money. That's all. So yeah. I, I wanted them to understand that I'm here just just for you. And uh, mm -hmm. let, let's keep our mind on what we want to do. Although we did mm -hmm. talk about other things. We didn't just talk about poetry. Uh, mm. Sometimes they criticized uh, the poets who were well-known. Uh, I'd bring in like a recording of Nikki G. Bunny reading or um, Leroy Jones, uh, Imam of Raqqa reading. Uh -huh, and and uh -huh. they would criticize and say, oh man, he's not that great a poet. And, and <laughs> they, they thought that Nikki G. Bunny was uh, really kind of pompous and so on. So yeah, yeah, yeah. more so, we, we, I wanted them to understand, let's evaluate their work, never mind the person. Yeah, 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 yeah. And did the conversation ever turn, because you know, you were there explicitly in the wake of the uprising. Absolutely. Um, one, one year within, yeah, one year later, yeah. Yeah. And and also, I think it, it was it seemed to be like a program that was that was almost started because they were like, well, you know, let's provide something for these men to do so that maybe this doesn't happen again. 
And so can you tell me, did they ever talk about it? Were they, I mean, the men that you taught, were they there for it? And did they ever talk about what they remembered of those days of the uprising? And then especially of the violent last day when, you know, people they knew were killed? Absolutely. Uh, they talked quite a bit about it sometime, but I, I sort of steered it away from that because I wasn't weird. I already was aware of it. Um, Tom yeah. Wicker who was a uh, writer for the New York Times, I believe it was, had already written a book that I read. So I already knew these things. So I, I didn't really get into it too much and too much of the criticism. And uh, uh -huh. I wanted them to learn how to write poetry well. I was very, I'm, an I'm an extremely critical professor, you know. Uh, extremely yes. critical. Not to the point that I'm yeah. going to slam you, but I'm going to say, hey, why don't we try it this way? So that's what I was more concerned with uh, the men in, in terms of what they were learning and how they were learning. And uh, was, I a good, right. was, was I a good role model for them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm also, I mean, like, you know, when you, when you teach people poetry, of course, you can be like a strict professor when it comes to the quality of the poem and, you know, sort of the... Uh, the quality of the images or, you know, w whatever else. But of course, they still have to write about something. And, and, and a lot of the men, of course, were writing about these traumatic experiences. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, they, 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 and, talked, they talked a lot about it, uh, about what happened. Yeah. And some, some of the things that happened to L.D. Barkley and some of the other guys I already knew. A lot of these guys who were killed, I knew them. So oh, they, wow. they, they really? talked about what happened. Personally? They talked about the aftermath of it, and they talked about yeah. the, the number of people who were killed, but it was horrendous because what they told me was a lot more than what we saw in the news or heard in the news or in Tom Wicker's book. Um, these men told me some stuff that um, just wasn't in the news. Can you give me an example? Well, the example, they would say that after the, the riot, uh, they were lined up and uh, asked to walk through a gauntlet. And not only were they hit on their behind, they were hit in their private parts as well. Um, they were shot. Many, many of the men who were shot, of course, keep in mind, now, there were 43 men that were, that were killed, I believe, but a number of them were their own people. There Prison were, guards. Yeah, there were 30 guards and, yes, 13. Yeah. Uh, inmates. So right. what the men told me was that as they watched their own uh, fellow inmates being shot, they were shot. That person, even when he was lying on the ground dead already, they were still being shot. Wow. And, and all the men wanted. See, the main thing we had to realize, why did this Atticus thing take place? The men wanted just plain, ordinary things. We don't want, we want to have a shower more than twice a week. We want to be yeah. able to you know practice our religion if we're Muslim, if we're Christian, if we're Jewish. Uh, we want to have uh, better food. We want to, yeah. we, we want to be human. Stop treating us like as though we're not human beings. They were asking for yeah. ordinary stuff. Mm -hmm. So when I think about it, I, I almost tear up even now. It's nothing unusual they were asking for, nothing. Do you want to read a poem or two um, that is sort of more closely uh, linked to the uprising? Uh, I was thinking of maybe the first one uh, on page 49 by a man whose name is Mshaka. 
Yeah, here's a poem called Formula for Attica Repeats. Exactly. <laughs> this is the poem from which we got the title, When the Smoke Cleared. Formula for Attica Repeats. And when the smoke cleared, they came. Aluminum paid lovers from rock the terrible. Refuser of SOS collect calls executioner. They came, tearless tremblers, apologetic grin factories that breathe cool smoke rings and state-prepared speeches. They came, like so many unfeeling fingers, groping without touching the 43 dead men who listened, threatening to rise again. It's oh, incredible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What what hits you about it now when you read it now? When I read it now, now um, I mean, they talk about Rock the Terror, but they're talking about Rockefeller. Ah, uh, Rock- uh-huh. the governor of New York. The governor of New York. See, Rockefeller right. at the time was not going to yeah. intervene in any way because he had aspirations to become president. I found out that later on, you see. Um, I want to ask you one more question about sort of the, the painful stuff about the uprising. I think it's important that we, we talk about it a little more. Um, I was wondering if we can do it by reading a little bit from your journal again. So on page 80 of When the Smoke Cleared. Uh, go ahead and read it. <laughs> you want me to read it? Yeah, you go ahead and read it. I can't find it. Okay, okay, it okay. too long to find it. Okay, great. <laughs> right. Uh, Hersey Boyer, one of my best, missing tonight in lockup. I was told he was, quote, bitten by a dog, unquote, meaning the guards beat him up, I suppose. No one wanted to discuss it with the guard present in the room. How interesting. The guard sat in the room with us tonight. Most unusual. Can you tell me about that? Like, what was the mood in the room like when a guard sat in the room? It was very strange when when a guard was in the room. uh, Yeah, they were a little bit stilted, but... um, then the guards stopped yeah. staying in the room for, because uh, um, and I mentioned it to, I can't remember the person. I said, why don't the guards sit outside? These guys aren't going anywhere, you know, and they sit outside the oh. door. So what they did, they put a black guard in the room. Oh, A guy that, that, I, that I knew on, yeah, I knew him in Buffalo. So, so uh, and that was nice. I already knew the guy. <laughs> so the, the guys felt a little more comfortable and a little bit more forthcoming. Totally. Of course, I see. Yeah, because that seems so hard to me, too. I try to imagine, like, how do you, on the one hand, encourage these men to be creative and express themselves? And then the other, you know, they still have to go back to their cells being guarded by these same guards. So they probably don't want to provoke them either. Like, how do you how did you navigate that line? Well, here's how I did it. I looked. I compared Attica to apartheid in Africa before Nelson Mandela became president. Mm -hmm. I also compared Attica to my great-great-grandfather, my great-grandfather who was an an enslaved person having come from Africa, from Ghana. So when I made those kinds of comparisons, I let them know that even in the midst of all of this, the enslaved people who still became creative people, right? Right? The mm-hmm. people in uh, under the apartheid uh, regime who still became mm-hmm. free and had one of the greatest men I have ever respected, Nelson Mandela, he came out yeah. of that having been in prison somewhat, some 27 years. So yeah. the thing I was trying to teach them in was that you can succeed. 
okay? I used to tell guys, hey, if Tisdale can come out of the projects, if Tisdale can come out of South Carolina with his parents to the projects, okay? Go to a yeah. vocational school because they didn't want me to go to an academic school. So I uh -huh. learned in a vocational school. I became an electronics major. Oh, wow. In high school. Wow. Seneca Vocational High School. Because I wanted to be, or I was told to be, an electrical engineer. Mm -hmm. So as I was graduating in May of that year, I was going to graduate from high school. My guidance counselor came to me, Angelo Swatsey. I never forget him. He said, Tisdale, I'm looking at your grades here. You have an average for four years of 96. That's your average over four years. What are you going to do? I said, well, I'm going to the Air Force. You know. He said, no. Yeah. You need to go to college. Now, in a vocational school, you're not prepared to go to college. Mm -hmm, I don't know mm -hmm. how <laughs> Mr. Swazi did it. But within a month, he had me enrolled as a student at Buffalo State College in the English department. Mm -hmm. I don't know how he did that. <laughs> and I went back after I graduated from Buffalo State College. And those same people who taught me were now my colleagues. So you basically wanted to encourage them to not lose hope? Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and I also encourage them not only read poetry, because I'm not here to teach this poetry. I'm here to teach you about yourself. Marcus Garvey. Okay? What do you say? Up your mighty race. You may accomplish what you will. This is Marcus Garvey coming from Jamaica to America in 1914, somewhere thereabouts, to encourage black people to get up. Come on. Malcolm X. My hero is Malcolm X. I got a, uh -huh. a picture of him. Here he is right here. <laughs> yeah, that's my man. Yeah. Malcolm X. And do you, uh, like, you know, would you ever, because it, Malcolm X, especially at the time, was also not someone that you can mention without I mean, now too, I think, without polarizing people, right? Absolutely. So do, was he someone that, you know, you talked to the students about or, or did you try and not bring up those kinds of names? Um, I didn't do it too often because I didn't get yeah. into the too much revolution, as they say, revolutionary stuff. Because yeah, they, yeah, 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 they, yeah. they would have canceled the whole pre-workshop. So I had to be kind yep, of careful. Yep, yep. And in certain things that they brought up, I steered them away from it. Sure. But what I for their to, own protection in a way. Absolutely. But what I wanted them to yeah. understand, you can accomplish anything you want. Do you feel like your encouragements, can you remember any men that really heard it? Oh, yeah. Harold Packwood was, it comes to mind right away. Harold Packwood uh -huh. was an extremely uh, gifted poet. Yeah. He was a person who, who understood himself, who he was, and so on. Uh, Christopher Sutherland uh, was an yeah. extremely gifted poet. Um, and a couple of these guys, I got them. Uh, L. Alexander Brooks. Oh, I love that poem, Dialing. So Brooks, he decided to become an English major. So he got what? out. The last letter he wrote me, he was now an English major wanting to become an English teacher. Wow. I love that poem that you included by him. Could I ask you to read that one last poem? It's a poem called Dialing. Um, Ah, I see what it is. Uh, okay. Yeah, there it is. There it is. 
He had a great sense of humor. Yeah, too. right. Exactly. I thought this was such a fun poem. And he was a good poet, too. Uh, Dial. Uh-huh. Dial the number, got the time. Hey, that's neat. Got the weather for a dime. Well, can you beat? They've got a number you can dial for the latest quotes on Quaker Oats. Preferred or common convertibles, warrants, and ex-dividends. And the inning-by-inning series scores and the speed at which traffic is moving so you can tell if the flow is improving well enough so that cars on the expressway won't get ticketed for overtime parking. And a number where a canned hostess announces that at Kennedy, Newark, and LaGuardia, things have congested so in the last hour that after three hours of circling and bounces, flight 706, already delayed seven hours by bomb threats and skyjacking rumors not yet confirmed, is being diverted by Providence to Providence, where the field will shortly be completed. Finally, there is a number not listed where the devout can dial God direct and tell him their troubles. Ten cents for three minutes, but the line is always busy. Or the phone just keeps ringing and ringing and nobody ever answers, not even nobody. And then when disgruntled, I hang up, I never seem to get my dime back. All of which makes me wonder, is somebody trying to tell me something? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when I first saw that, I laughed for a long time. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yeah, Brooks, Brooks is a good one. It's incredible. So, you know, so L, uh, Alexander Brooks, he, he became an English major? Yeah, he and became, he went on to be a teacher? Yeah, yeah. I don't know if he became a teacher, but he became an English major. He wanted to become a teacher. That's the last I heard from yeah. him. He is a professor somewhere. I don't know. Yeah, I hope he is. <laughs> I'll go ahead and Google him. Uh, maybe I should. Yeah, that's a, that, I never. Yeah, I forget to do that. Yeah, I'm not too adept at these, uh, you know, the computers and stuff. My wife does all this stuff. Uh, I got this new phone just two days ago, and uh, I, I'm still learning how to how to do this thing. <laughs> but uh, I'm a pretty intelligent. Yeah. I'm a pretty intelligent guy. I, I think I can do it. I spent a few hours on Google trying to find Alexander Brooks, but I couldn't find one who fit the bill. If you want to read his poem and others incarcerated in Attica during and right after the 1971 uprising, you'll find a selection, as well as Dr. Tisdale's journals, in a new book titled When the Smoke Cleared. The book is out almost 50 years after these poems were first published, in two collections, titled Betcha Ain't, Poems from Attica, and We Be Poeting, both edited by Dr. Celeste Tisdale. Today, Tisdale is Distinguished Emeritus Professor of English at the State University of New York at Buffalo. To find out more, I highly recommend the foreword in When the Smoke Cleared, which was written by the poet Mark Novak, as well as a feature about the book by Lizzie LaRudd on the Poetry Foundation website. And if you want to know even more, 
there's a Pulitzer Prize winning book out about the Attica uprising. It's titled Blood in the Water by historian and professor Heather Ann Thompson. And the book was initially banned from the prison. But after a First Amendment lawsuit by the author, in August, that ban was lifted. The music in this episode is by Todd Sikafus. I'm Helena de Groot, and this was Poetry Off the Shelf. Thank you for listening. <laughs>